If you're new here, what we like to do is go through books of the Bible and try to figure out what the Lord has to say to us there. And we've been working through the book of Mark, and we're just into the first chapter. We're on down to verse 14, and we're going to cover all the way through verse 20 this morning. And uh, as you turn there, I'm just going to make a few announcements that I forgot to earlier. Uh, Every year we do an apple butter festival, and what we do is we make apple butter, and there's some booze that go on. And so we're going to have a meeting to iron out the details for that on Thursday. That's this Thursday at 6.30 p.m., and that meeting will be over here. So if you want to be involved with that in any way, it's important that you come to that meeting so you can have a voice and we can exchange ideas and figure out the best way to engage the community with the gospel through this event. Uh, Secondly, uh, tomorrow night, as is uh, usually the last, I guess it's the fourth Monday of every month, uh, we do a coffee house. And so at 7.30 p.m. at the Parsonage, uh, we're going to be doing a coffee house. We're going to drink some coffee, eat some food, and it's basically open to question answer. There'll be like a time where you can ask me questions, usually theological in nature, uh, and we try to discuss some of those things. Next Sunday is we're going to be doing a potluck for the end of summer after church. And then at the end of September on Friday and Saturday, it's a, it's a two-day trip, uh, Chelsea and I and some others are going down to the Nine Marks Conference. It's in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And if you're interested in that, you can get with me after, and uh, it, it should be a good time. Their subject is church membership there. And so if you're interested, uh, just contact me and we'll, we'll work through that. Well, hopefully you're to Mark by now, and uh, you've made it to, to see chapter 1, verse 14. And uh, we're going to get there in just a second before we uh, do some, uh, I guess, catch up to tell you where, how we got to verse 14. Mark has made his purpose for writing the gospel apparent from chapter 1, verse 1, wherein he writes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. See, Mark believes and writes to the end of making you believe that Jesus is God himself, that he came to absorb the wrath due to us himself in order to reconcile us to himself. Mark wants us to know that Jesus rose from the dead and proves his acceptability, he proves his power over death, he proves his identity as the Son of God. Mark wants us to believe in and follow Jesus. Last week we covered Jesus' baptism and his time in the wilderness, and we said that Jesus, the Son of God, identifies with us so that we can identify with him. We said that he identified with us in his sin as he was baptized. He was sinless, yet he identified with sinful humanity. And then in the wilderness, he related to Adam, where Adam had failed to obey about the tree in the garden. Jesus obeyed God, right? He obeyed his word perfectly by going to the cross. He obeyed about the tree And like Israel had failed in the wilderness, Jesus in the wilderness did not fail. He succeeded, and we said where we fail, Jesus succeeds, and that he identifies with us so we can identify with him. This week, we're going to see the beginning of, or the inauguration of, Jesus' earthly ministry. We're going to see the kingdom of heaven, or what Mark calls the kingdom of God, breaking into human history. The one big thing this morning, the thing that you can grab a hold of and think about throughout the week, are Jesus' words here. The words that bring hope, words that bring joy, words of radiance, words of light. Words that say repent and believe the gospel. 
going to do it a little different this morning. I'm going to read the whole text and we'll come and deal with it in two parts. First part will be the call and the second part will be response, call and response. You read starting with verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately, he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat, jerks, with hired servants and followed him. Let's pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, help us to read your word, to work through your word, to think about your word, to pray your word, to be led by your word, to be changed by your word, to submit to your word. Lord, this morning, wash us all in the water of your word. Lord, thank you that you have saved us, that you have communicated the gospel to us. That you've saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to your own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom you poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by your grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Lord, your word is good. Thank you for it. Amen. You know, I love this story of Jesus calling his disciples. I, I know that it's a story many of you have probably heard hundreds of times, but it's, it's a great story because it's their story. And if you're in Christ, it's our story. If you're outside of Christ, listen, it can be your story. This ministry of Jesus is at its beginning, and it's going to show us just how good will overcome evil. It's the dawn of morning that begins dispelling the darkness of night. You know, it's the beginning of a story of a secret and humble king who becomes like his people, fights for his people, dies for his people. Jesus' death in the end will make all seem lost, yet in his dying he will slay the vile dragon. He will rescue his people. It's the beginning of that story. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That's what we see in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus comes to Galilee and begins proclaiming the gospel. The word gospel means simply good news, or a way I like to think about it is news that brings joy. It's not just breaking news. It's history-making news. It's not a discussion on ESPN on whether or not Johnny Football will start for the Browns. It's the world is not flat. It is round-level news. It's news that changes and challenges everything. It's news that has become simply known as the gospel. And the gospel and the, the 
easiest sense is, is an announcement of what has been done for you. And here we can already see in this simple word gospel, the difference between Christianity and all other religions, including no religion. You see, the essence of no religion and other religions is advice. It's rules that you set up for yourself to follow or rules that are imposed on you from some source outside of yourself. The essence of other religions is advice, whereas the essence of Christianity is essentially news. The essence of other religions is advice. Christianity is essentially news. Other religions and no religion offer rules to live by, ways to prove yourself worthy or earn your way to God. Whereas the gospel offers you the news that you don't need to prove yourself worthy or earn your way to God because Jesus has done that for you. Christianity says the way that you have peace with God and gain true joy is not by trying, trying again. Or by working harder like Boxer the horse does in Animal Farm. But by turning away from self and sin and turning towards Jesus. By believing in his finished work on your behalf. As a result, instead of being burdened by self-inflicted, subjective standards. Or standards that you just can't keep and can't live by. You become free to live according to God's standard. As an act of love. If you remember way back in Galatians, we said that freedom or liberty in its essence is not, uh, not, not having any rules, right? Not having any restraints. We said true freedom is living inside of the right restraints. We're like fish in water when we, when we become in Christ. The laws of God become a delight. They become essential to life. When you follow God's law or his design for how life works best, it stops being a burden and becomes a birthright. The rules stop becoming just silly rules that you keep for whatever reason. And they become a delight to you. Because they please God. When you respond to the call of the gospel, you're not called to oppression or to religiosity, but to freedom and to rest. That's the call Jesus gives in verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I like to think of verse 15, uh, sort of like a press conference. Uh, you, you know press conferences, right? Nixon had one way back when. He said, I am not a crook. Uh, Allen Iverson, basketball player, had one. When he missed a practice, he said, practice? I'm talking about practice, man. Maybe you've seen uh, more recently uh, the Mike Gundy for Oklahoma State. Somebody made fun of his quarterback or something. I don't remember. But he said, you come after me. I'm a man. I'm 40. You watch him on YouTube all over and over again and laugh at some of these people. It's a press conference going on here. It's more serious though, right? Jesus' words are going to be lasting. He's making an announcement for everyone to hear. And he's announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. This kingdom of God is the substance of Jesus' teaching and is identified in the closest possible way with his person and with his ministry. Some have defined uh, the kingdom of God as the sovereign rule of God initiated by Jesus' earthly ministry and to be consummated when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, Jesus Christ. 
So the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has broken into our world already with Jesus' ministry here when he took on flesh and was born in a manger to a virgin. The kingdom has broken in. It's here already, but there's also, it's not here yet. It's not yet here. All things are not yet made new. You and I are not yet in glorified bodies. As much as you might like to look at yourself in the mirror, your body is not yet glorified. Soon, though, soon. The kingdom won't be here in its fullness until Jesus returns and renews all of creation. But the kingdom of God is at hand. And we ought to repent and believe in the gospel. There's great urgency here. Before we move to response, though, we have to understand the call. We need to know who the messenger is and what the message is. We've determined already, as we said earlier, that Mark thinks and wants us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. He's the one that's mightier that was to come after John the Baptist. He's the one with whom the Father is well pleased. He's the one that brings the kingdom. The message is to turn away from self and sin and turn to Jesus, to trust in Jesus rather than in yourself. To believe the good news, the news that brings joy, that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. That he is risen from the dead and will return to make all things new. The message is to repent and believe. Do you understand the urgency here? We need to. We need to understand the urgency of the kingdom of heaven being at hand. Jesus is saying this kingdom is happening right now. In other words, this is a message that must be dealt with right now, this morning. It's a situation that can't be ignored. It's like your car breaking down on the highway. Or waking up to your room on fire and a lion in your closet. These are things that have to be dealt with right now. It requires action. Can't put it off like washing the dishes. Can't put it off like a paper that's due for school. Jesus' message is powerful, it's confrontational, and it's compelling. It commands repentance and belief. It commands faith. Faith requires, just like repentance, to turn from trust in ourselves to trusting in Christ. And the purity of that faith is always tested in the fruit that it bears. Martin Luther uh, used to say, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Or in other words, true belief shows up in how you live your life. You've heard me say it this way a few times, right? We have our stated belief, and then we have our actual practice. And when we add the two together, they will equal or yield our actual beliefs. Your life bears out what you believe. Or maybe you want to think of it this way. Your theology, what you believe, will determine your biography, how you live your life. The gospel calls not merely for intellectual assent, not merely for lip service to Jesus' ability to rescue, but it calls for genuine repentance, a genuine turning from self, a genuine turning from sin towards Jesus. All this is built up to this question. What has your response been to the gospel? You either believe it or you don't believe it. 
What does your life tell you? Have you repented and believed? Or are you in your sins? I mean, really believed. What does your life tell you? Jesus proclaims this gospel message in short form, saying, follow me. Look with me at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It's the same message he is proclaiming in verse 19 and the first part of verse 20. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. It's the same message being proclaimed to you this morning to repent, to believe, to follow. The call is the same. How will you respond? Will you follow Jesus? Let's look at how the fishermen respond. Verse 18. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then the second group. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. First followers of Jesus here are Galilean fishermen. And to me this is somewhat comical and uh, it's just weird, right? It turns my my expectations a little bit upside down. I I expect Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God to come and uh, sort out the, the cream of the crop, if you will. I mean, I expect him to go straight into Israel to get the best scholars and the best students to be his followers. Instead, Jesus is in Galilee with fishermen. Now, traditionally, uh, if a Jewish teacher was a rabbi, is what they would call him, or a scribe, uh, students would come to them and say, hey, can I study with you? That's not what happens here. Jesus doesn't allow them to select him, right? Instead, he has a different type of authority. You can't have a relationship with Jesus. You can't study with Jesus unless he calls you. He calls them to himself. He says, you, you're going to study with me. Additionally, the chief allegiance of rabbinic students was to the Torah rather than to a particular rabbi. In the Old Testament, the idea of following God is is rare, if not absent. Moses, nor the kings, nor various men of God, nor prophets call people as a rule to follow them. The summons rather is to walk in the ways of God, to walk according to his statutes, to follow God's way. But Jesus here doesn't call people just to follow God's way. He calls them to himself. He's asserting himself as the one about whom all the scriptures testify. He's calling the fishermen to himself. He is the way of righteousness. He is righteousness. Notice here that Jesus doesn't show any favoritism. Right? I mean, sure, the fishermen are established businessmen. And at least in the case of James and John, they're in the family business. And while their ability to communicate in the trade language is laudable, it's still very unlikely to qualify them for the role of disciple. Yet Jesus chooses them, not because they're overly wealthy, not because they're in abject poverty, not because they're just really good guys, 
and certainly not because they smell good. He chooses them because his love is unearned and it's lavished upon everyone who repents and believes. Jesus is not concerned with occupation. He's not concerned with social status. He's not concerned with nationality. He summons all people to himself without partiality. I used to work as a, as a server at a, at a country club in Wake Forest. Uh, it was a tournament players club. It was owned by the PGA Tour. And we had a celebrity roll in every now and again. And when, when that happened, everybody kind of argued over who would get to wait on the celebrity. You know, hey, I waited on Stuart Scott or, you know, Darius Rucker, whoever came in that particular day. Same thing kind of happened when we had more... Um, I guess better tippers is just the way to say it. People that were a little bit more generous with their money. There'd be a little argument going on on who got to wait on those people. Side note here, a uh, good application. If you go out to eat after church, tip well. They're looking at you as, as Christians. You know, I hate it. I used to hate it when uh, I would work on Sundays and people would leave me the, the million dollar question. It was like a tract that shared the gospel with me and then they wouldn't tip me. That was the worst. This is, this is the stingiest God I've ever been around, right? No, be generous with your money. Represent Christ well when you go out and someone waits on you. Be generous to them and say, hey, uh, thanks for the great service. I want to be generous to you as Christ has been generous to me. Anyhow, we would argue over who got to wait on the good tipper and then draw straws over who got to wait on the more, uh, the less generous people, let's say. The point here is that Jesus isn't like I am in that way. And he, he's not like that waitstaff. He's not treating the celebrity or the big tipper any differently than anybody else. He lavishes his love unabashedly upon all who confess him as Lord. I mean, that's part of the beauty of the gospel. That in Christ, we are one holy nation, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. We're no longer divided along the lines of nationality and social status or race. He said we're united in Christ as one new man, as Paul says. And as the bride of Christ, we ought to display his glory by engaging with all peoples from all places with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do you play favorites when determining who your friends will be? And choosing who you will share the gospel with? Jesus sows the first seeds of the church when he calls these four fishermen into fellowship with himself. He offers fellowship with himself without qualification. Likewise, we ought to offer the gospel and fellowship here without favoritism. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone who was different from you socially or racially? Jesus shows no favoritism. Also would like to point out in verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Jesus calls these fishermen away from their livelihood. He calls them away from their families, away from their nets. He calls them away from their 401ks, away from their savings accounts, away from their weekly routines, 
away from their security and away from their safety. In C.S. Lewis's uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, there's this wonderful scene wherein Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? About Aslan. Aslan is the hero of the books, and he's a lion. Is Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. Jesus is not safe. He does not promise us health and wealth and prosperity. Instead, he promises us death. He bids us to die to ourselves daily, to pick up the cross and follow him. Friends, this is not safe. Jesus died covered in his own blood with nails in his hands and in his feet and a crown of thorns upon his head. Don't follow Jesus if you want to be safe. Jesus is good, though. And he is the king. He's the only king worth following. In fact, he's the only thing or person worth devoting your whole life to. He alone can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. He alone shows us what it is to truly live. And he calls us to do this with him eternally. Jesus calls Simon and Andrew and James and John away from the safe path of being fishermen and onto the dangerous path of discipleship. Calls them onto a path that they would not have chosen for themselves. A path that would not be easy to walk. But the only path that would be joyous. The only path that would be satisfying. I was watching Lord of the Rings yesterday, which isn't a surprise to most of you. Uh, and there's an opening scene in, uh, in the, the, the Hobbit, the new one, The Unexpected Journey. And Gandalf uh, comes up to Bilbo Baggins and he says, Hey, how do you feel about going on an adventure? And Bilbo's like smoking his pipe and the, the smoke's rolling off. He's just chilled out, relaxing. And he says... No, no, no. Adventures are no good. Uh, They cause you to be late for dinner, right? His point is, it makes me uncomfortable. It calls me out of where I'm secure, out of my safety. And that's what Jesus does. He's calling us onto an adventure. And it's not safe. Oh, but it will be satisfying. This call to follow Jesus is not some fluffy, like rainbows and kitty cats and puppy dogs call. It's not feel good about yourself on Sunday, walk out, live your life. However, the call to follow Jesus is terrifying. And it's also freeing. Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Some of you are like, wait, I thought Jesus was about love. This verse says to hate. What's going on here? What's going on here is Jesus isn't calling us to hate actively, but to hate comparatively. In other words, he says, if you follow me, you need to follow me so fully 
so intensely, so enduringly, so that all other attachments in your life look like hate by comparison. Jesus is saying, I must be the supreme passion of your life. Friends, if you have this relationship with Jesus wherein you say, I'll obey you, Jesus, if my career thrives. I'll follow you, Jesus, if my health is good. I'll follow you, Jesus, if my family stays together. Then whatever is on the other side of that if is your real master, your real God, your real goal. But friends, Jesus will not be a means to an end. He will not be used. No, he is an end in and of himself. He calls you to follow him. He must be the goal of your following. If you want to follow Jesus, he must be the supreme passion in your life. These fishermen leave their occupation, which their identity would have been tied to. They leave their families. They leave themselves. They leave their nets. They move from being defined as fishermen to being defined as disciples. Their supreme passion in life is now the kingdom of God. What about you? Are you defined by your job or your family or your goals? Are you a fisherman or are you a disciple? What is your supreme passion in life? What are your priorities? Where do you find safety? In Christ alone? Friends, it's time to leave your nets and follow Jesus. Also, I want to point out here that Jesus calls these men at not the most convenient of times. And he tells these guys to follow him while they're fishing. Simon and Andrew, they're in the process of actually casting the nets out into the sea. And the Zebedee boys are mending nets in their boat. I mean, they're in the middle of work when Jesus calls. These aren't disgruntled postal workers just waiting for a reason to leave, right? I, I like to think they like their jobs. It's not a good time. They don't tell Jesus, though, hey, following you sounds great, but let me go home, uh, finish up here at work. I'll shower up once I get home, put on some fresh clothes, some deodorant, some cologne. We'll be good to go. Then we'll, we'll follow you. No. It's not a good time, but Jesus' voice demands a response. They immediately drop everything and follow him. He doesn't wait until they have it all together to call them. Jesus calls them right now. He doesn't meet them at the devil's backbone and lay out a five-year plan. He doesn't say, yes, after you've finished your work, after you've finished college and earned that degree, after you settle down and have a family, after you become a really good citizen, a really good moral person, then follow me. No, he says, follow me now. Period. Friends, Jesus doesn't wait until you have arrived or until you've gotten everything together, until you've cleaned yourself up. It's a lie. You you can't clean yourself up. He cleans you up. He calls you and he cleans you. I mean, even after he cleans you, there's still this residue of sin in us, right? 
We still battle daily to try to become and practice what he's declared us to be, right? We try to be like Jesus. We try to be holy, but we, we fail. Most of us daily. Maybe you're doing a little better than I am. But let me point out, it's okay to not be okay, right? It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. We all come here every week, and none of us arrives having lived a week without sin. All of us have areas of our lives where we are broken. Areas where we are hurting. And what we need is Jesus. What we need is the fellowship of the saints. What we need is prayer and encouragement. We need to, be come, we need to come together as the body of Christ before Christ. We need to be in his presence. There's no reason... To pretend like we have everything together. And that life is easy. And that following Jesus makes everything perfect all the time. It doesn't. It's stupid to pretend. Playing pretend I have it all together Christianity robs you. It robs you of the wonderful gift of community. It robs you of living out Jesus' words of radiance. It robs you of daily confession and repentance. It robs you of accountability. It robs you of spurring one another on towards good deeds and love. It robs you of making your love for God visible and how you love others. It robs you of your joy being complete. It robs you of walking in the light as He is in the light. It robs you. Status quo Christianity is wicked. And it's of the devil. Friends, let's stop pretending and start living in a genuine gospel culture. My prayer is that this fellowship at Rockfish would have a culture that is defined by repentance and belief. Culture that looks like a bunch of needy sinners coming together, confessing, repenting, and trying to look more like Jesus as we together give him thanks and praise and glory and worship. When we do this, we will experience some of the deep delights of the gospel that we often ignore in favor of preserving our pride and in favor of our own convenience. Jesus doesn't wait until we have it all together. He doesn't wait until it's convenient. He tells you the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. To repent and believe the gospel. And I love here. You can't see it really in English. But believe. He's calling us to believe the gospel. Repenting and believing. It's this continuous action. Repent and believe. Are in a tense that is imperfect. It's, you're, not, you're not done. After you do it once, you're not done. The Christian life is daily continuing to believe, continuing to repent. Jesus doesn't wait to bid you follow me. Non-Christian, you can follow him this morning. And I would love to help you figure out what that means for you. And if you want to get with me sometime after the message or after church, I, w- I would love that. Christian, it's, it's time to stop pretending. It's time to start living out repentance and belief in the gospel right, right now. And this morning, before we take communion, I want to do something a little bit different. And I, I think that it might make 
most of us uncomfortable, but uh, I'm I'm content to do that because I think that it will lead to uh, our maturity in Christ and deeper blessing than our uh, uncomfort, I guess, us preserving our comfort is worth. Uh, What I would like to do is have a, a brief time uh, while, while Hilda plays kind of the, the song of our, repenti- our, uh, of our hymn of response, where we confess sin to one another. I'm not asking you to lay out a laundry list of sins to one another, but what I'm saying is get with your spouse and your family or some friends that you're close with, small groups. Use our space. Maybe go over here where there's some space, over there. Maybe just huddle together in a pew. And just look, confess, I am a sinner. I'm in need of Jesus' grace this morning. Just confess to one another. Pray with one another. Just quickly. I, I, it's, it's, it's an easy thing, but it's a hard thing. But that's the kind of culture we need to create here. And I think we create it by doing things like this together. If you can't think of any sin in your marriage, just ask your spouse. They'll, they'll help you out with that. I was telling Chelsea I was going to do this this morning, and she asked, hey, do you you have anything you want to confess now? And I said, well, no, but then by church I won't have anything left, right? I've got to hold on to that. But let's, 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 let's move, let's get with people, do what you need to do, confess your need for Christ. And if you don't know where to go, just come hang out with me. It'll be all right. Uh, I'm not too scary, I don't think. Um, And we'll we'll pray together. And so uh, I'm going to pray, Hilda's going to play, and everybody's going to move. Hopefully. Then I'll pray again to end that time and we'll come together and and we'll fellowship around the table, take communion. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would apply this word immediately. That we would respond to the call of the gospel right now by confessing our sin to one another. By loving one another and praying for one another as your church, as your bride. Jesus, create a gospel-centered culture among us and start right now, this morning. Make us authentic, not proud, but confident in you. Make us not despairing, but humble, knowing that we were so wicked that you had to die for us, yet we're so loved that you did die for us. You were glad to do it. Lord, thank you for living the perfect life, dying the perfect death, And rising in victory over sin and death. Thank you for counting our faith in you as righteousness to us. Thank you for loving us. Amen.